Okay, so today's topic is the 1980s. I'm going to go fairly fast. This PowerPoint is already up on Canvas for you, so don't worry if you miss something. But you will notice that I do not just give you a bunch of stupid... Um, you'll notice that I don't just give you a bunch of text to read. If I was going to give you text to read, I would just let you read it. So as you're preparing your presentations, keep that in mind. Do not create a presentation that is super text heavy that you just read to your classmates. That's so obnoxious. Haven't you have ever had anyone do that to you? You go somewhere and you're like, I could have just stayed home and read this myself. Hey, let's go back and let's remind ourselves of what was happening in our nation, I was going to say yesterday, but in the late 1970s, okay, who was the president? Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter, what political party did he belong to? He was a Democrat. And what was going wrong with the country at that time? The economy was in really, really poor shape. Something else had happened in Iran, and what was that? Hostages. Iranian hostages. So, we have problems. And into this environment, we have a new revolution. They call it the conservative revolution. This is a worldwide movement. This is not just the United States. It happens in Germany and England and France and a bunch of other places, but I'm going to stop just naming a bunch of places. It also happens in the United States. And who's the president we come up with in the, in the United States that's part of this movement? Ronald Reagan is correct. Now, just to hear my own biases uh, just a little bit, I like Carter. He's a good person. I like Reagan. He's a good person and an entertaining person. So you're going to hear lots of Reagan stories today. I want to throw some videos up on Canvas, too. I don't want to take the time during class for them. But like you should see Reagan telling Soviet jokes, it's really funny. And see how the audience reacts to him. Hey, now, if we have a conservative movement, we need to know what conservative means. And of course, we need the opposite, which is liberal or progressive. Um, side note here. In our modern country, we have a lot of people who claim to be conservatives, but do not know what it means. A lot of times they'll criticize others, and conservative has, especially for some media personalities, become a meaningless word that only means you're a conservative if you agree with me, and you're not conservative if you don't agree with me. But it has a real meaning, and you need to know its actual meaning, otherwise you'll get confused. So, here we go. Conservative, first, before we start that, the root of conservative is to conserve. So as a general rule, conservatives like to keep things either how they are or to return things to the way they were. Now, is that always true? No. But that's where the word comes from. Hey, so for starters, conservatives prefer small government. Or, as Ronald Reagan put it, government is not the solution to the problem, government is the problem. 
Liberals, on the other hand, believe that government can solve the problem. The government exists to serve the people. We can see this if we look back at COVID-19. The conservatives were like, well, you know, we'll leave people alone. They'll make their own best decision. The progressives were like, no, we need the government to step in and do things like mandates to keep everybody safe. So you could see which people are often by what they look to for a solution to the problem. Hey, conservative social policies tend to be, um, well, conservative. <laughs> they tend to be anti-abortion. They tend to be for traditional family structures, that kind of thing, where liberals or progressives tend to be the opposite. That one's fairly easy. Conservatives are usually tied to the Republicans, although there are other conservative parties, the Constitutionalist Party is, or the Constitution Party is very conservative. So is the libertarian, root word liberty. Liberals are usually tied to the Democrats. Okay, fair enough. Questions? Okay, if you're frantically trying to copy down everything on the PowerPoint, remember, I throw it up on Canvas. It's already there. So we'll move on. Now, understand that they also create this conservative coalition they call the New Right. Conservatives, right-wing, liberals, left-wing, because of where they sat in France during the French Revolution. Conservatives sat on the right, liberals sat on the left. So that's why we call them left and right. A lot of this is tied to uh, this religious group there are religious people who are conservative who become really involved in politics in this period. They call themselves the Christian right or the moral majority. Sometimes they're called the Christian coalition. Now that does not mean that every religious person is a conservative. That's not true. Some of them are very staunch liberals. But the conservative ones in the 1980s get to be very powerful and change things a lot. Hey, good? Bueno? Now, let's get to the history of it because that's much more exciting and entertaining than this. So we have Carter there on the left. We have Reagan there on the right. Notice Reagan's fairly old. At that time, he was the oldest person to run for office. Now we have Trump and Biden, who both blew him out of the water. But ironically, it was funny, when he was running for a different office, uh, the person he was running against said, oh, he's just way too old. And Reagan stood up and he said, listen, I will not make age a campaign issue. I refuse. I absolutely refuse to capitalize on my opponent's youth and inexperience. Which was pretty good, right? So Reagan does this. C Carter and Reagan debate each other. And here's, remember Carter's background? What was Carter? He was a peanut farmer, but he was also a nuclear engineer. Yes. So is he smart or dumb? He's smart. And so he stands up in the debate has all these numbers and things and starts reading them. 
So what happens when someone starts reading you numbers? Did you let in one ear, out the other, or you fall asleep, someone said. Yeah, you don't tend to be able to focus that well. So he stands up with all these numbers and says all this stuff. Reagan, Reagan just looks over at him and says, oh, Jimmy, there you go again. And all the American people are like, yeah, there, Jimmy's saying all this crap again. It works really, really well, Reagan's strategy. Why is Reagan good in front of a camera? He's an actor. Good. Excellent. As a matter of fact, Reagan, you could criticize his policies all day, but if you said he was a bad actor, he'd get really mad at you. He also really liked movies. So he came Monday morning to one meeting, and he's like, so back in this day, you didn't have, like, he probably had a VCR, but they weren't super common in the early 80s. He came to this meeting, and they're like, did you read the report we gave you? And he's like, you gave it to me last night. And they're like, yeah, did you read it? And he said, the sound of music was on. Duh, no. I had something else to do. <laughs> Reagan could get away with stuff like that because he was very popular. We haven't had a president that could get away with stuff like that probably since Reagan, that people would be like, yeah. Um, I, want to, I want to pause here for a second, too, and give you just some background for him. Um, the presidents that you grew up with, so like Trump, where did Trump get his money? His parents, his dad gave him money. He invested it in real estate. Yeah, but he, was, he grew up rich. Okay. Bush, he grew up rich. His dad was the president, but they were oil investors in Texas. You know how you get to be super rich? You go back 100 years and invest in oil in Texas. Hey, this is why Bush is super rich. I really like Bush because he lives in Crawford, Texas. So he must be a good person. Now, <laughs> Reagan grew up. Um, he wasn't that way. And about half of our presidents did not grow up wealthy. Reagan grew up, he went to public school, like you guys. But hopefully, unlike you guys, he had a really bad family. His mom was good, she worked super hard. His dad was an alcoholic. And he talked about going home, finding his dad there like when it was below freezing and a lot of times he had to pick his drunk father up off the doorstep and take him inside so he wouldn't freeze to, de to death at night. He paid for his own college by lifeguarding. So that's, I, there's nothing that irritates me more than someone who can't spell who's like, I have a box elder education. Like I have a former student at Harvard. Like don't, don't give me that crap. You can do what you want to be. This concludes my graduation speech. So. Now, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Decide what you want to do and do that. So Carter's versus Reagan. Now, I told you yesterday that there's one guy that almost always predicts who's going to win an election. And what was that? 
The economy, and how's the economy? It's bad, so Reagan's gonna win. Okay, in fact, I'm gonna skip all this crap. Don't write this down. Some of you are frantically trying to write. Stop writing. Don't care about that stuff. We already know it's all about the economy. They're hoping Reagan can fix the economy. So Reagan wins. It is not a landslide, but he wins by a decent margin. He's a military guy. Well, he's not a mil. He is. He helped make films, training films for the military. Um, he has this idea called the Strategic Defense Initiative. But his enemies call it Star Wars. Because this is during the Cold War, so Russia's a big threat. So he has an idea. If Russia ever launches nuclear missiles at us, we will shoot them down with laser beams from space, which would be super cool if we could get it to work, but it still won't work. But we can now shoot them down with missiles from Earth. So it does work out okay. But what I really want you to know is that he has a strong military idea. Hey, back to kind of the Theodore Roosevelt, speak softly and carry a big stick. And so he bolsters the military, which of course involves massive amounts of spending, which increases our debt. Some of you think that's worth it, some of you don't. Doesn't matter to me which you think. It does matter to me what happens. And it goes on. <laughs> okay, so he does that. He deregulates the economy. That's his big thing. We'll talk about that in a sec. So go th going through his economic views, he cuts welfare. He says this, which really offends a few people, and other people are absolutely delighted. He won't apologize for it, because he's like, if we're giving them our money, then we can dictate how they spend it. But the key thing, the thing that you need to know is his economic principle. It's called, its real name is supply-side economics. But people call it Reaganomics or trickle-down economics, and you really should recognize all three names. To illustrate this, I went into my yacht and took this picture. Okay. My butler's name is Jim, not Alfred. Don't mock him. You, you were gonna, I could tell. Some of you are looking at me like you don't believe this is actually my yacht. Okay, so I grabbed a random picture off the internet. But let's say that it is my yacht. To make this thing, who would have to be employed? When I first constructed it, what kinds of people would need jobs? People who build boats, for starters. What else? What do you see there? What kinds of specialists would I have to involve? Oh, good. Yes, the people that kind of gold-gilted the doors. Who else? 
Electricians, excellent. Plumbers, great. Whoever makes fancy high-end couches, I don't know who that is. Because I buy my couches at RC Willie. Or Ikea. <laughs> right? Like, wait. Okay, the woodworkers, all this other. So the idea is, if I get richer, oh, and of course I'm employing, uh, what did I say his name was, Jim? Yeah, so I'm employing him too. So the idea is, if I make a rich person richer, then that money will, this, what they call it trickle down, that money will also benefit the people that I employ. I will spend my money, and that will make more people. It'll help everyone else. Or as Reagan put it, a rising tide, like a rising economic tide, lifts all the boats. Everybody does better if the rich people do better. Now, we could argue against this. We could argue for it. We could argue all day, and that would be really fun if this were an economics class. But it's not. So instead, we just know that Reagan took this stance. And so he cuts taxes. But the key thing he does is he deregulates. So a good example is savings and loans. They give loans to people from other people's savings. He decreases the regulation. So he says, hey, you can loan to whoever you feel like uh, qualifies. The government is not going to tell you who you can give loans to and how much you can give them. He deregulates a lot of like electricity producing places, manufacturing places reduces the environmental protection requirements on them, which decrease their operating costs and increase the pollution to the environment. It's during Reagan that we really hit the big heavy trade imbalance with China. And the reason why is because we got to be pretty prosperous, and so we started buying tons of Chinese crap. I mean, excellent products manufactured in China. If you'd had this class as freshmen, we could have looked at the tags in your shirts, and most of them would say China. But just recently, China has been improving their own economy, doing better. Hey, it's also during Reagan's presidency that the United States economy really shifts. Before this, we were a manufacturing nation. We still manufacture a lot of things, but we mostly make things that make other things. We make machines that we sell to China or Bangladesh, and the Bangladeshis use those to make clothes that they sell back to us. But under Reagan, we moved to more service jobs. Now, let's imagine for a second that you work somewhere, let's say Maddox. Sorry, I saw your shirt. So, you're working there at Maddox. That's a service job. You're not making something, food doesn't count. Okay? Manufacturing means like cars and stuff, right? Okay? Web pages don't count either. Manufacturing means you're making cars and trains and whatever. So, um, they start having more and more service jobs. Most of you work in service jobs, right? 
most of you dream of working in a service job when you graduate from college. As a side note, since you have to graduate from high school first, note that on the board. I will give uh, everything you give me, I'll put in the grade book. As a matter of fact, I even got permission to bolster your grades after you guys aren't allowed to come back into the school, you seniors. So we'll do a few things. If you want to follow along at home, go on Canvas and do the thing and turn it in. I will grade it and I'll give you the points. But you can't go down. Like it's not required. But I'm like, what if I want to help their grade? And the administration was like, you can do that. Okay, not really pertinent at this moment. Now, you are going to think I made this up. You're going to think I'm joking, because this is the lame kind of joke that I would actually make. But what I'm about to tell you is 100% true. It has to do with John Hinckley Jr. This is him. See, Mr. Hinckley had watched the movie Taxi Driver over and over and over again. And he had decided that he had fallen in love with the actress Jodie Foster. Now, being a normal, ordinary person, see him there, John Hinckley on the right, uh, being an ordinary person, Miss Foster did not even know that John Hinckley existed. So Mr. Hinckley decided to come up with a way to impress her, hoping that maybe she would see how awesome he was, fall in love, and marry him. So the technique he chose to impress Miss Foster was to assassinate the president. You're looking at me like, it's true. This is what happened. You can look it up. I'm not making this up. Because if I made it up, I would come up with something more believable than this. So Hinckley shows up. He has a handgun. This is before they developed the modern Secret Service techniques that they have now to keep the president safe. So they had some, but not others. So what does he do? He decides uh, to shoot the president. He hits a dude named Brady, unfortunately, a cabinet member, if I remember correctly, in the head and causes him permanent damage. He hits Reagan. A bullet ricochets off the armored car. And so the Secret Service agent is trying to shove Reagan into the limo. But you see how Reagan looks like he's in pain? A bullet's just glanced off and it's hit Reagan underneath, well, right here. They rush him to the hospital. They go on the radio, hey, rawhide is hit, rawhide is hit. Secret Service, you're looking at me like I'm crazy. The Secret Service has nicknames for the president. Reagan's was rawhide. I don't know what Biden's is, by the way. I don't, don't remember. Um, so Reagan's, Reagan's hit, they rush him to the hospital right there in the limo. They start rolling him in. What, he walks into the hospital on his own power, but when he's there, you know how hospitals are. You go up to the desk. In front of the desk, he collapses. He wakes up again, finds himself on the gurney, being wheeled back. 
looks up at the surgeon and says, I hope you're a Republican. Surgeon says, he's not a Republican, by the way, says, we're all Republicans today, Mr. President. Wheel him back. They watch him through his convalescence. The result of this is Reagan comes out of it being more, po more popular than he's ever been before. Another example of people who try to use violence and it doesn't help. It helps the other people. It doesn't almost ever help the people who use the violence. Hinckley, by the way, is put in a mental hospital. For trying to assassinate the president, he probably would have got 15 to 20 years. Instead, he served over 40 in this hospital till they finally said, oh, we think he's cured. So he's, he's out now. He would have been out before if he had not been in a mental institution. But. Yeah. It, I just, like I'm not a girl, but I'm pretty sure most of them aren't impressed, impressed by attempted presidential assassinations. I don't know, ladies, what do you think? No? I don't know. A few, a few of them aren't shaking their heads either way, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a little worried. 1984, the election comes. We're not going to talk about it very much because Reagan wins by a landslide. By this point, he's very popular. The economy is on good, solid ground. So the, the thing that matters is this. He runs against Walter Mondale and Geraldine Ferraro. Geraldine is the first female to run for U.S. national office or to get as far as she did, which is cool. The second one was Sarah Palin. The third one is the one who won, Kamala Harris. Do you know who that is? Something you don't know who that is? That's the vice president right now. Vice President Harris. Now every president needs a scandal. Reagan's is the Iran-Contra Iran scandal. But wait, I said Iran, and the screen says Nicaragua. Am I confused? Probably, but not about this. So Nicaragua had these rebels. They were called Contras. And they were anti-communist. Being anti-communist, you know, Reagan doesn't like communists either. And neither do most Americans. So they want to help these Contras fight against the, the communists. So the US decides to send them weapons to assist them in their cause. But they didn't have funding for this. So how did they get the money? Well, they sold some weapons to Iran. Now, so what? We sell weapons to Israel all the time, or Canada. What's wrong with this one? What's wrong with selling weapons to Iran? Yes, yes, good. There are enemies. 
We're not supposed to sell weapons to our enemies. They also discover in process of time that they've been trading arms for hostages. Which is pretty bad. So people accuse Reagan of this. They say he's doing it. And he's involved. It's this huge thing. They call in this guy, the picture you see, that's Oliver North. He testifies before Congress. Reagan at first says, I don't remember doing this. Wait, I mean, this says something about his popularity, okay? Imagine if Biden or Trump said, I don't remember doing this. People would be like, what is wrong with you? But when Reagan says it, they're like, yeah. How can he remember every little bit of his foreign policy? They don't have a clue either, so... So they're okay with this until they provide proof that Reagan authorized it. So Reagan takes this proof. Now remember we learned about Nixon yesterday. What's the dumbest thing you can do? Try and hide it, try to do whatever. So Reagan does something that's very, very rare in politics. He goes on television, he says, I've seen the stuff, it looks like I did authorize this. I should not have done that, and I'm sorry. You guys all look really shocked, because you don't expect that, right? If you go into politics, that's the right answer. People respect honesty, and they respect people owning their mistakes. By the way, that works with your parents, too. Do you get in trouble? Yes but you get in the kind of trouble of we love you and we're proud that you owned it instead of the you suck, what's wrong with you, stop lying to me. Maybe you never got that second kind of trouble, but I did when I was a kid sometimes, and that's the worst kind. <laughs> so yeah, so Reagan owns it. The scandal does not take him down. He goes ahead and serves all the way to the end of his thing. He is not friends with communists. Well, he is friends with communists. He does not like communists. I love this quote. It sums it up really, really well. It's a quote from Reagan. But he's still super personal. He can dislike communism, but like individual communists. He builds a friendship with the premier of the Soviet Union, this guy. Mikhail Gorbachev, he does have a birthmark on his head. It is not a lightning-shaped scar. So this is not, you know, the guy Harry Potter was based on, although that would be cool if it were true. Being friendly with communists but hard on communism, Reagan goes to Berlin, suggests that it's time to tear down the wall. A few months later, they do tear it down. It's not just because Reagan showed up. But Reagan did have some effect on it. The Soviet Union comes up with some new policies. You don't need to know what they're called. But what they mean really is openness. For the first time, the Soviets decide they're going to be more open with the outside world. So they see things they haven't seen before. This is going to sound dumb. But a good example is the Brady Bunch. You ever see that old 60s show? 
They all live together in a pretty nice house. They have a maid. People in Russia are like, wait a minute. You guys told us that in the U.S. they have like shootouts at noon all the time. Like we live in the Old West or something. But in reality, they live like the Brady Bunch? What the heck? And so they start demanding differences. Eventually, this leads to protests. They send in the army to fight the protesters, and the army turns their tanks on the parliament building. So this is the parliament building burning after tanks shot it. It was epic. This I remember quite well. I was a ninth grader in 1991. Yeah, so no more USSR. Now, side note here. The Soviet Union had a group that was like a cross between secret police and RCIA. So it's like secret police and the spies. Yes, they're called the KGB. And a high-ranking official in the KGB was named Vladimir Putin. So if you ever see Putin's actions and you're like, wait a minute, he's acting like the Cold War is still going on. He's acting like a Soviet premier. Yeah, he is. Because that's when he was prosperous and when he felt successful. You'd think he'd study history enough to be like, oh, this is a losing strategy. Our government fell apart, but apparently that's not his strong suit. It's in this time period when people leave the manufacturing. Remember, they move from manufacturing to service jobs. So they leave the heavy manufacturing areas, like the Rust Belt, that part where they make cars and steel and things up north. And they go down to the Sun Belt, take advantage of new air conditioning technologies. I mean, they had air conditioning before this, but this is when it gets to be really effective. So you see tons flood into Arizona and Texas, Florida. Tons flood into California, which is later followed up by the you know, 2020s, the flood to get the heck out of California, which is what we have now. You know, a lot of them have moved to Boise, which I find an interesting choice. Hey, last thing for today. It's the nation at risk. Now, I want to start prefacing this. A lot of teachers will pontificate on you know, their opinions of education and whatever. I want you to remember that in historical study, this is one of my specialties, the history of education. <sighs> Reagan's Secretary of Education goes in and asks them to give the current state of education in America. As a result, they print this report. It's called the Nation at Risk Report. So is it going to be pro-public education or anti-public education? It's called The Nation at Risk, and it's about schools. It's going to be pretty anti. Yeah, they're not fans of it. As a matter of fact, their basic thing comes through and says that schools in America are so incredibly terrible that the country is going to fall apart if we don't fix them right away. Now, I want to take a side note step here for a sec. Has America fallen completely apart? 
do we have innovators and clever people? Did a lot of them go to public school? So is this report accurate? No. There's two big mistakes that people make when they look at education and its purposes and how it works and everything. One of them is that schools cannot solve problems that schools did not create. So we had another racist attack last week, right? Buffalo, terrible, terrible thing. And you see the newspaper articles pop up because they always do saying, you know what we need? We need more education on this issue in schools. The problem is schools can't fix issues that schools didn't create. It's a society, it, racism is a societal issue. Can we help? Yes. Can we solve it? No. We can't. It's not possible. Hey. By the way, I can source that because this is my specialty, so I can source. Anyway, um, William Reese, Jacob Laverty, just to throw the names. One's a historian, one's a sociologist. So the schools, they think they're, oh, here's the other thing. I told you there were two things. The other thing I forgot to tell you. In the United States, we compare our students with the best students from other countries. The United States always fails international comparisons because what happens is, well, first, you know how our school works. If I go out in the hall right now, if we wander through the hall, you're going to see some students wandering the hall, right? We go out to the North parking lot, it's the same students, the students whose parents hung out in the North parking lot, the students whose grandparents hung out in the North parking lot, they're still there. They're not going to class, right? But they're still here in school. In another country, what happens is in eighth grade, they give them a test. If they pass that test, they get to go to the good school. And if they fail the test, they get to go to the school that just prepares them for generic and crappy jobs. So what we do is we compare all of our students. We compare our whole population including the ones who don't go to class, to their, to their best ones. So we always do worse. Which system is better? I'd argue ours is better. Why? Because we have people who do so many cool things. How many things were invented in the United States? How well have we done? We've done really, really well. And eighth grade isn't a great predictor for how you're going to do in the future. But we do this so we always look bad. And now what they do is they compare our students and they look at them and they say, oh, well, the school's failing. Well, yeah, because you're looking at those students. We cannot force them to go to class. They won't allow the use of cattle prods. That was a joke. Don't, I don't actually want to cattle prod my students. So... Gavin looks frightened. He's like, <laughs> so here's the thing. First, they come up with some suggestions, but the thing I want you to know is this. They start pushing us to focus, us. I wasn't a teacher then. They start pushing the focus in the United States to focus almost exclusively on the students who struggle. 
I've heard some of you complain about this. How come the administration's always worried about these kids who aren't doing well? Yeah, I know they won't go to B-time, but that's their problem. I go and I do what I'm supposed to. Why does the school end up focusing on them? Because they're forced to by the government, and it all started with this, a nation at risk. Now, I will give you the rest of the time to work on your stuff.